listening to KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 1055kfgm.org. And now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP dash Montana, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. I'm Catherine Kern with Mark Anderlich, and we have an interview with Cooper Carraway from South Dakota. He is the youngest leader of a state federation of the AFL-CIO in the country. We look forward to that. 
We're broadcasting from the historic Union Hall in Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral home of the Salish Kootenai people. We are recording this show from, from the comfort of our own homes, which is located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish Kootenai people. And despite all of our wishes, um, Catherine, uh, and my wish too, uh, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part by wearing masks when you are inside in public, by frequent washing of your hands, and by getting vaccinated especially. Yes. This, show, this show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy it as we have enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And as always, we want to give old Mick a shout out too, as he is at home and hopefully doing well. Our word of the week is really two words, general strike. Can you expand on this, Mark? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Um, well, as listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our Fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, uh, has suggested that we include a note about Wikipedia, such as each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. And according to Wikipedia, a general strike or mass strike is a strike action in which a substantial proportion of the total labor force in a city region or country participates. General strikes are characterized by participation of workers in a multitude of workplaces and tend to involve entire communities, end quote. So a general strike is when large numbers of workers refuse to work in a specific location. That's, yeah, that's right. But it also includes, I think in, in, in these days, uh, students boycotting classes, small business people closing up shop, and other refusals to participate in the political economy. And there has been recent calls in the U.S. for a general strike. Exactly, exactly right, Catherine. Um, so one example is the Vermont AFL-CIO, who, according to their website, proposed a general strike in case Trump refused to concede the presidency in case he lost the election. Well, calling for a general strike is far more easy than pulling one off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's uh, that almost goes without saying, right? And, um, and, and, and this is not a new issue. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg, the Polish German Democratic Socialist who was active from 1886 to her murder in 1919, was a big advocate and student of general strikes or what she called mass strikes. And so I'm going to spend a little time reading from an article, uh, only partially from an article by Rita Vacuas in the journal Prometheus about what Luxembourg had to say about successful general strikes. Vacuas writes, uh, if you went to any anti-austerity protests in the United Kingdom in the last decade, and, and anti-austerity means uh, you know, no budget cuts for social mm -hmm. programs. That's basically what that is. Or even for like infrastructure and things like that. Um, if you went to any anti-austerity protests in the United Kingdom in the last decade, you may well have seen the ubiquitous placards demanding a general strike now. In the US, General Strike 2020, 
briefly trended on Twitter in March of that year, spurred on po by popular writers like Naomi Klein and Brie Newsom Bass. Most tellingly, shortly after this, multiple articles appeared explaining what exactly a general strike is. Of course, no socialist would be against a general strike were it to occur, but raising the demand for a general strike through placards on demonstrations or by popular tweets suggests a decline in our ability to think about what mass strikes are, why they happen, and what can be achieved with them. The basic importance of Rosa Luxemburg in this matter lies in the insight that Quote, the mass strike as a political means of struggle is simply a historical product of class struggle, which just like the revolution can ne neither be made on command nor rejected on command, end quote. Um, the, so just to unpack that a little bit too. So Luxembourg saw the general strike as a means of politics. I mean, we think of voting and petitioning our Congress people uh, as political in this country. But, but actuality, and, and currently in several countries around the world, general strikes are being used to demand new constitution or a, a new political order as well. Yes. Um, and, and then is simply a historic product of class struggle um, is basically the, these things cannot, are not controlled by uh, people, um, you know, by individuals, these things are, are massive, right? It's, if you think about the, the massive protests that happened after George Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, you know, last summer, um, they weren't commanded by a single group or a single person. Antifa could not stop no. it or start it, <laughs> um, nor could anyone else, right? This they were is something organic. Yes, yeah, it's, it's much more organic. And that's what they mean, you know, about the revolution can neither be made on command nor rejected on command. Um, so the author continues, this does not mean that we should not think about mass strikes on the basis that even the most organized workers party cannot simply bring them into being by force of will. But it means we need to think more carefully about what it would mean for the conditions to emerge for a general strike in the course of waging a conscious, active class struggle. Okay, I'm gonna stop there again too. Class struggle is basically the 99% against the 1%, if you wanna think of it that way. Um, and let's see, where did I leave off? Oh yeah, uh, Rosa Luxemburg made clear that discussions about a general strike must begin by making some basic distinctions between the industrial mass strike um, for better working conditions or higher wages, and the political mass strike. And in the latter, between the anarchist conception of the political mass strike and the social democratic conception of the political mass strike. Um, as it seems fair to say, most calls for a general strike today have been typically been concerned with overthrowing government, with acquiring or contesting political power. I want to draw out what exactly the social democratic conception of the political mass strike is and gesture to what that might teach us today. In order to do this, I am not going to start at, at 1905, the year 1905, where the mass strikes of the Russian Revolution made the strike as a tactic a spectacular centerpiece of international debate. 
I am going to start at 1893, where the Belgian workers went on strike for voting rights and won universal, if unequal, male suffrage. What are the prerequisites for a political mass strike? Um, Henriette Roland Holst, in her book, General Strike and Social Democracy, recommended by none other than Rosa Luxemburg herself, named the prerequisites as one, develop class consciousness and unity between the political and the industrial movement, end quote. So explain class consciousness to the listeners, please, Mark. Well, class consciousness means simply that the 99% see and understands itself as subordinate or subservient to the 1% in the political economic system, which we call neoliberalism. And in addition, class consciousness means that the 99% see this as wrong and that the political economic system needs to have fundamental change to correct that wrong. Well, this is gonna require some education. Yes. And you know, I, I think Catherine too though, that th there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, people who consider themselves conservative or Trump supporters. They, a lot of them see that corporations are really, and, and the wealthy are running this country. And, um, and so I don't think it, it, it's so far away, but you're right. It, we, we have to realize that we're subservient. We, we don't have a full democracy, right? And, um, and that subservience is wrong and that we've got to change it. That's, that's all that class consciousness means. Um, Luxembourg herself studied closely the 1893 Belgian general strike. Um, the author of this article continues, the essential chronology of it runs like this. On 11 April, the Belgian parliament rejected a proposal for the introduction of universal suffrage, or that means everyone gets the vote, right? Everyone over 18, I guess, um, gets the vote, uh, which I didn't realize it was even a lot of um, property-less property men, certainly women did not have the vote during right. that time, but property-less men also didn't have the vote in Belgium. Um, so you had, to be, you had to be somewhat wealthy to even participate in the system. Um, so the, uh, you know, the Belgian parliament rejected a proposal for the introduction of universal su suffrage and other election reform proposals. The Belgian Workers' Party called for an immediate strike on 12 April. Some 250,000 workers answered their call. The resulting street demonstrations led to bloody battles with the police, with 30 workers shot and hundreds injured. By 18 April, the Belgian parliament responded to the demands and agreed to universal male suffrage with plural voting, meaning that some men, depending on taxation status and education, could have more votes than others. <laughs> and that, that's sort of- Of course, the property people are going to protect their vested interests. <laughs> right, of course. That's the system is set up, you know, uh, this was a gain when we had universal suffrage that er anyone could vote. That was a major gain in, in human society. And, and even that's beginning to um, be taken back um, in different ways. Um, so, you know, after that, after 18th of April, 
uh, the strike was over. When recounting the tale in 1898, Luxembourg said it, quote, confirmed the old truth, he who dares wins, and the best defense is an attack, end quote. So let's return to the first prerequisite for the mass strike, developed class consciousness. How was this built into the Belgian workers' movement? In a speech about the suffrage struggle and its lessons in 1910, Luxembourg narrates this spectacularly. She said, in 1886, a storm tide of strikes broke out. Five years of seeming peace followed, right up until May Day, 1891, when the Belgian workers raised their first mass strike for universal suffrage. Can any state, even the most powerful, slaughter 125,000 workers? No, end quote. Simply put, the general strike of a quarter million people could not have e even come to this point of occurring without this growth in struggle that preceded it. The, and, and this was the work, was the patient building of workers' organizations, the capacity to strike, and to withstand state persecution. Those, those were the elements that, that went into that. So it took about five years of what we call today organizing to have a quarter of a million workers educated about their inferior place in society to be trained and organized in workplace strikes and other means in which to build power to change things and to build a structure of organization that can withstand police attacks, spies, and media assaults. Exactly right. And, and so that just doesn't happen overnight, right? It has to be right. a very conscious effort uh, on the part of leaders, not only of unions, but of the, the, the party, the political party, right? That was um, working with the unions. Um, the, all of these things are essential. And Vacuus continues um, in her article, she says, but what of the second condition of a political mass strike? unity between the political and industrial movement. The storm tide of strikes in the late 1880s was aided energetically by the Belgian Workers' Party. Emil van der Velde recounted a quarry worker strike of 2000 workers in 1889. The party provided speakers for the strike meetings and 60,000 kilograms of bread. In his words, a beautiful witness of vitality. What distinguished the Belgian general strike of 1893 from the attempts in England by the Chartists to strike for universal suffrage some decades earlier was this. The Belgian worker industrial movement trusted the Workers' Party to lead it politically. In the 1893 general strike, an astonishing degree of rapid coordination was demonstrated. The Belgian Worker Party executive declared a strike on 11 April as soon as parliament rejected suffrage reform. Within 48 hours, the Belgian trade unions had organized shutdowns across all the major regions of Belgium. And all that without social media. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So when the Belgian parliament refused the votes for all adults, the Belgian Workers' Party called for a strike and the already prepared unions immediately began to strike, that's hard to see happening in this country. Yeah, in multiple ways. I'd say that, um, you know, uh, if, if the Democratic Party is, is the party of, you know, the working class, 
Um, there's a, a lot of union members that don't, I'll, I'm here to say that don't trust the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then uh, if, if the, uh, you know, the class consciousness among workers in this country is growing, but it's not anywhere near as well developed as, mm -hmm. as it was then. And then, you know, the last element, um, you know, the ability, the skills and the organization necessary to pull off a general strike is really non-existent. Um, and I've said, I've, I've said this in other shows, and I, I do think that, you know, a, a properly functioning AFL-CIO would really be that organization to, um, uh, you know, plan and train for some kind of uh, strike. If it's a strike against, you know, a wannabe dictator to take over or a general strike to basically uh, de de defeat uh, uh, the media giants in the, in the, you know, Silicon Valley. That's what I was oh, yeah. looking for. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, you know, th that could be done, you know, th that's where that could be done. But, you know, all these pieces have to be in place, have to be in place, and they're not currently in place. So you're right. Um, you know, the, um, and, you know, the dem, I could go on, you know, about that, but, uh, um, we have our work cut, cut out for us. Of course, if the general strike is to be even, um, seriously considered to be used as a tool, uh, for defending and broadening democracy, as the author points out, the Belgian workers party was not, of course, a particularly revolutionary party, nor did it have an attitude of unconditional support for strikes. As Marcel Liebman has summarized, the Belgian Workers' Party had fixed the conquest of universal suffrage as the objective of a general strike and rejected all attempts to confer revolutionary content onto a general strike, end quote. But precisely this unity between the political and the industrial movement allowed the strike to take on a momentum of its own, letting the storm rage for as long as it could. In contrast, in 1902, the Belgian workers' movement went on strike once again for universal suffrage with, with full universal suffrage, right? So they had a partial victory, and then they went on, mm -hmm. they tried the same tactic um, to, get, to get the full victory, and they had three, they had more, they had 50,000 right. more participants, 300,000. But this time, not the slightest concession was achieved from the government. In 1913, yet another Belgian general strike occurred, this time with 400,000 participants, again, without success. So Mark, why did the two larger general strikes failing your opinion and the first one partially succeed? Well, of course, there's, you know, probably many reasons. <clears throat> but again, from the author, um, quote, Luxembourg identified the reasons for these failures in 1902 and 1913. In 1902, the Belgian Worker, Workers' Party had an alliance with the liberals in parliament, and as a result, had already committed to maintaining the strike in a restricted and legal form, forbidding demonstrations and agitation in advance. As Luxembourg put it, they deflated the latent political power of the general strike into thin air. The 1913 general strike was even worse. Planned from 1912 onwards, 
the party leadership had done everything they possibly could to postpone or prevent it and relented only to organize it in a circumscribed legalistic manner. In Luxembourg's words, it was based on the idea of, quote, avoiding any revolutionary situation, any unforeseen turn in the struggle, end quote. So in this way, even if both the 1893 and the 1913 strikes were conducted perfectly peacefully on the side of the workers, the mass strike in Belgium in 1913 represented a step backwards in political consciousness, a stultification of the movement. The unity of will and direction had been broken by the Belgian Workers' Party own leadership with the unions. Luxembourg understood that the success of a political mass strike does not depend on mere mathematics, the number of striking workers combined with the money and relief funds. It depends on how far you are willing to go and how far your opponents think you will go. Practically speaking, striking terror into the hearts of the bourgeoisie is essential. (laughs) Well, that's making the cost of not giving in to the demands of the movement too high of a price to pay works in all kinds of bargaining. That's, that, that, is, that is the number one lesson you learn in any kind of struggle or conflict. It always, unless it's unconditional surrender, <laughs> um, yeah. it always ends in, in negotiations. And in negotiations, if you hold a strong, you, know, you can make it, you can make the, uh, the, the cost of not conceding um, very, very high. Yes. Uh, that's how you win. It's like wrestling. Right. This is not, this is not a parlor game, right. As they used to call them, uh, where, you know, because we have the best arguments and we have right on our side, that means we ought to win. Um, which is, you know, s- somewhat the attitude that, you know, the organizing in Amazon, I think took on, uh, in, in not being realistic about having enough power, and in anticipating the kind of dirty tricks that the other side would play is uh, it, it, it's not a way that you're going to win, right? You got you to win, you got to win by um, just like you said, right? That uh, uh, making the costs and not giving in to the demands of the movement too high of a price to pay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and um, Remember, uh, I'll just add in here what Frederick Douglass had said, right? Very famously, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. There's... It usually stops at that quote, but it keeps going. The limits of tyrants are pres- prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. It's right? very similar to Martin Luther King Jr. statement. Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Right. And, uh, and, and you win that by building up enough power to make the mm-hmm. uh, whatever opposition you have, uh, it's easier for them to give concede to your demands than to fight you. Right. That's, right. that's what you have to do. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, you know, I also want to say too that um, what Douglas's quote also puts into uh, a, a real sharp focus is that um, you know it's tyrants don't have 
unlimited power. They have, their power is only as much as is given to them by those who they hold power over. And so that's a really key understanding of how power works. It's not inherent in the tyrant. But back to the article by Rita Vaquas um, in the spring 2021 edition of the journal Prometheus. Um, she said, uh, many calls for general strikes or even women's strikes in the UK and the US today reflect the dismal Belgian experiment of 1913, but with even less of a mass basis. They are routinized demonstration strikes in which the specter of social revolution has been exercised preemptively by the workers' organizations themselves, which in this case would be the unions and the Democratic Party. One-day strikes declared publicly months in advance give so much time for the state to prepare and head off any potential disruption before any issue occurs. This was the case in the UK public sector pay dispute in 2011 when 2 million workers went on strike on November 30th. They dutifully returned to work the next day without having won anything at all. Comfortable in the knowledge that the strike would only last one day, the state made careful preparations for key services to run as normal and simply waited the day out, end quote. Yeah, it's about leverage in a political general strike. The president or governor, the Congress or legislature, like employers, must be put in a tough position to concede or face the shutdown of the economy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think in a lot of respects, people are not realizing that some of what's being done, while it looks good with the numbers, is a little bit like performance art in that there's not a lot of bite, there's not a lot of substance to it if it's there one day and they're finished with the next and everything continues to go on as it was before. Yeah, you may get some headlines and there may be some violence that makes the news. Uh, there could be some great speakers that are broadcast, but what has actually been accomplished? Well, I do think, though, that sometimes if, if it's one of the early steps of a much longer planned mm -hmm. campaign, it, it's like a structure test, right? right? If it's one day, that would be good. But, it's, but basically, then you just don't go back to work and then call it good. You know, it's like that's a test for the next time, which maybe you go out for a week and see how that works. And then the next time after that, you're going out open-ended. Right. I mean, it could be something like that, but you're mm -hmm. right. If it ends just right. on that one day thing, it's, it's performance yeah. art, you know, I, I absolutely. Um, so, um, and, and just being the so-called good guys, right. With right on their side is not enough. The article by vacuous concludes a political mass strike when seriously aiming at victory and let, let's underline that word victory to win okay, is not just demonstrating that you have moral superiority, you, it, this is about winning, um, that uh, cannot, it, it, a political mass strike cannot have limitations forced upon it from the outset. And Rosa Luxemburg knew that workers' organizations are, in her words, our tanks, our cannons that we need for the struggle. They will undoubtedly get battered in the course of the fight. That is why it is all the more important to build them up strong. 
The best defense is a good attack, and no attack succeeds without organization, end quote. Well, that works in sports, too. The best defense is a good offense. Yep, absolutely. In most sports, not for baseball, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that reminds me of the sports team strikes that started a little while back. And LeBron James was instrumental in getting some of this uh, going. And it was building momentum. I was really excited to see what. Colin Kaepernick had started a while back with the kneeling and the the protesting during the anthems was gaining momentum. They were talking about the discrimination within the sports. They were talking about the inequality within black lives and other ethnic diversity, minority lives that are oppressed and how the sports industry takes advantage of them. This was gaining momentum. And then we hear a news article. Obama makes a phone call into LeBron James and squelches everything. And the whole thing came to a standstill. Right. And you, you had, when we talked about this before, you brought up a really very um, perceptive um, uh, point. And that was where, uh, you know, if, 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 this was part of an organi- a real organizing campaign, a deep organizing campaign. Um, LeBron himself couldn't have stopped it, right? But no, uh, this- no media personality, no celebrity. I don't believe that if this had been organized properly, that any media personality, any celebrity, um, no social media figures could have stopped it. it. It would have organically grown and gained momentum for the basis of the cause itself, the inequalities that were going on. But again, this goes back to the thing of some of this is more like performance art. Right. And there's there's not the substance that's there that should be. And the more that we educate people on the process, it, which actually reminds me, there was a, a podcast I was listening to the other day. It was on June 29th the Fred Hampton leftist and Asha Krishna Swami, she's an attorney and a writer. And she was trying to impress on the listeners that you need uh, learning and understanding theory is important to understand the repeated patterns that are used against us. Then everything starts to make sense. It's kind of like when Noam Chomsky wrote about manufacturing consent that when he laid out the bullet points on there of how the the media and other governmental people try to manufacture that consent, when you look at that list, everything then makes sense. You start to see the playbook that they're using and, and how they're using it against us. And then you can combat that. Well, it was, um, there was an article that ties in with this by Caitlin Johnstone, uh, she wrote it on March 5th this year. The uh, Caitlin Johnstone has a, um, uh, she's a journalist with the platform on Medium. And the article title is, The Left Will Never Achieve Its Goals Until It Prioritizes Countering Establishment Propaganda, which again ties in to the education that Asia mentioned, 
that Luxembourg mentioned. I, these are all critical components in raising that class consciousness. She wrote in a number of um, places, she said, propaganda is the single most overlooked and underemphasized aspect of our society, bar none. It's so pervasive that most of us don't even notice it. Like that old joke about two fish who were asked, how's the water? And then turn to each other and say, what's water? Vast mm-hmm. <laughs> fortunes are poured into buying up media outlets, paying media bribes in the form of advertising, funding think tanks, manipulating online algorithms, buying the loyalty of influential politicians and other forms of narrative control. Immense resources are dumped year after year after year into manipulating the way the majority of people think, act, vote. And yet hardly anyone ever talks about this extremely important fact. She goes on to say, even among leftists, by which I mean anti-imperialist socialists, this is a severely under-discussed issue when it should be the most discussed because leftist agendas will necessarily be incapable of advancing as long as the majority of the working class are being manipulated at mass scale into consenting, voluntarily consenting to the agendas of plutocrats and warmongers. All socialists and anti-imperialists worth their salt are at least somewhat aware of the fact that the mass media are propaganda operations, but directly discussing this absolutely foundational problem occupies only a very small slice of overall leftist discourse. This will necessarily have to change if there is to be any meaningful leftward movement in our society. And she closes with talking about seizing the control of the narrative. This has never been tried before. Whenever I bring up prioritizing a grassroots media rebellion, I get a few leftists telling me, we're already doing that. No, you're not. You've never come anywhere close. At no time in information age has killing trust in imperial propaganda been the foremost priority of Western leftists. At no time has it ever been our collective priority to use our newfound ability to network and share information to weaken public trust in the mass media and tell the public the truth about economic injustice and the kleptocratic depravity that is Western imperialism. Our energy has been spread all over a variety of issues which have nothing to do with this far more crucial one. Information has never been more democratized and trust in the mass media has never been more low. The opportunity to expand awareness and what's really happening in our world has never been riper. All we need to do is seize on this opportunity and wake the working class up out of the propaganda-induced coma before the window on that possibility closes on us forever. Well said. That she just she just gave the uh, reason for this radio show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and that and that's. When you see social media and how they're clamping down, especially uh, on left um, socialists, communists, anarchists, uh, the whole spectrum of the left, democratic socialists, they, they are cutting accounts. They're dropping people's followers. They're blocking the virility of their posts, the message getting out. Uh, suspending and stopping accounts altogether with no reasoning whatsoever. 
It's not a platform. While people may get a little dopamine hit in their brain thinking, oh, we've done something. We're, we're activists. We're doing something. It's more like an echo chamber, but the echo chamber has been severely reduced by the corporations that own those platforms. Um, it's reducing the ability of the people to network. That's why I like the independent journalists like uh, Caitlin Johnstone on Medium or Asia that's over on historically at Substack and some of the others uh, like to support them and encourage their work, share it with others because we're fast losing the ability to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. they, they're really putting their thumb down. They see the writing on the wall. The inequalities are massive. People are rising up. They don't want us rising up. So right. they're trying to squelch it in so many different ways. We need yeah. that organization. We, we do. And, you know, it's not just the left. They, they've been aiming this at the right as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and a lot of people on the right are very upset about that as, as they should. Um, and, and, and you said that very well. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to maybe add on a little bit too. And that is, uh, may, the, the question that needs to be asked, um, uh, were people who are wanting to be active or who are active in some way, shape or another is what's your theory of change. Okay. And so if your theory of change is to get, uh, and a lot of like liberal foundations have this, right. It's like getting, I, I know this cause <laughs> a long time ago, I used to get these grants where, you know, they, they almost measured by the, the amount of column inches you got in the newspaper to call attention to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, or that you, you know, someone like LeBron James or some, media star comes out and supports you, right? Um, there, there's no change there, right? That's not, no. that's, that's not, you know, if that's your theory of change is, is, is having, you know, 300,000 people uh, march uh, or like in Helena, right? The, and I was there. I mean, I'm, it's not a bad thing, but to have 10,000 people march in Helena against um, the, the, what the, what they perceive, what we perceived as the deficiencies of Trump when he was first elected, um, it didn't, it didn't really change anything, right? right? It was, it was a spectacle and the media can, can absorb spectacle. It could either ignore it, which it usually does, yes. or it can just say, well, this happened, but you know, nothing resulted from it. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, so, power. Oh, yeah, is, they, they seriously controlled the narrative. Oh yeah, absolutely. By vocabulary word choices or uh, yeah. an example, a perfect example of this just occurred. Former Senator Mike Rebell died and they paint him as this extremist, this wacko, all kinds of Donald Rumsfeld weapons of mass destruction guy dies. And they're lauding all of these things that he has done. One, one of them fought damn hard for our democracy and for the people, for equality. Right. And the other light his ass off in order to promote the imperialist agenda of the right. United States. Right. And yet they laud him as this awesome guy 
and they insult Mike Gravel. Right, right. No, that's a great example. I mean, you know, one one should be a hero and the other is a war criminal. I mean, yes. <laughs> if if you look at it objectively, that's pretty much what it is. And yeah, I like the editorial cartoon that came out and said, weapons of mass destruction died at 88. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, the media has a big influence. But again, you know, this is about I, I like what Caitlin said is about taking control. I think she maybe overstates it a, a tad bit just to make her point, right? To make the mm -hmm. polemic, the, the polemical point is that we've got to make our own media. We've, we've got to do our own interpreting of what's going on in the world. I mean, that's exactly. kind of why this show, right? I mean, right. And, and it's not like we're, we're the, the final say on, on, on almost anything. It's just that, you know, having a conversation about these things and bringing, doing some research and bringing a little bit of knowledge and some understanding of, of how things work or they don't work to this, to this situation. We hope that people would be inspired by that and not sort of get sucked into the theory of change means that, you know, you got to have a lot of people out marching around and that's it. Um, but to more like what Luxembourg was talking about, mm -hmm. how do you really do an effective general strike? And a little bit later, we're going to go into uh, Colombia, but there's been general, uh, there's been several general strikes in the last year or two uh, in some very unusual places mm -hmm. um, like Chile, yeah. like uh, Peru of all places. And, um, and we're going to cover a little bit of uh, in Colombia where they call it the national strike, which is kind of on hiatus right now mm -hmm. because it is open-ended, right? And they go, okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to <laughs> provide some, you know, negotiating proposals. We're going to run through democratically with all the people and see what the government does. If they don't if they don't concede, then we're going to go back out and strike. Mm -hmm. right? And this is, that's, that's how it's done. And, and, you know, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, the, the national AFL CIO, and I think there's probably actually our interviewer interviewee, um, uh, Caraway from South Dakota, he's going to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he was saying it was, uh, he was saying, well, it was a little bit disagreement. There was that, that, Vermont jurisdictionally couldn't call a general strike if Trump stole the election, right? Mm -hmm. um, or if Biden stole the election for that matter, right? Um, but, um, and, and that's kind of, I think, I think that's a little politically cutting it too fine. Right. I think they were definitely saying, no, you're not going to do this. And I'm waiting, you know, maybe we get some different leadership in the AFL and certainly, you know, uh, in, in some pol worker political party, whether it's the Democrats or a third party that comes up that really starts taking seriously these issues of the 99%, right. then that's going to be when we start seeing, you know, the possibility of a real general strike happening right. in this country. And people need to be prepared for that just like you would mm -hmm. any other situation. And that's not being talked about either. No, you're going to go on strike and you're, you're not working. You're not getting paid. 
Right. You need to have money set aside. You need to have groceries set aside. You need to have these supplies so that it will help carry you through right. the time right. period because you can't do the one day things. They're not effective. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they're going and, you know, whoever you're striking against, whether it's the government or a, a set of employers or whomever mm-hmm. it is, um, they're not going to they're not going to go, oh, gosh, these guys are right. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, it's, it's, I've been really unfair and I think we need to, you know, that's, that's never going to happen. I mean, they're going to, if, if they do something like that, it's basically they have some face saving thing to say, and then they resign. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the, you know, but that's only, it's all about power. It's not about uh, spectacle. And right. um, you got to build the power and the power has got to be organic. Like you said, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if Richard Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO, told all the, you know, couple 14 million workers that belong to the AFL-CIO, well, we're going to go on strike on, you know, on uh, August 1st, um, you know, mass confusion, people aren't going to go out. There's going to be, it's going to be totally a disaster. He can't order that. It has to be built up. Like you say, Mm -hmm. people have to be prepared. People have to be organized. Right. And, and so that's why we spend a lot of time on the show talking about organizing because it's a fundamental skill that does not substitute for, um, you know, uh, hanging a, a flyer on someone's door. It does not substitute for having a symbolic, you know, one day strike. And that's where it ends. That's, that's all you do. And it's nothing beyond that. Right. Um, or just the, a rally or, or, or a rally, right. A, a, a rally. I mean, in, in, I'm not against any of those things. Right. But they just got to be seen in perspective of the real problem and, and the enormity of the power differential that we have in this country. Right. They need to be integrated components, not standalones. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, now we're looking at the current news as usual, lots of news to cover from this week. What's first on our current news, Mark? Well, like usual, unfortunately, it's the uh, pandemic. And despite six months of vaccine against COVID-19 being available, the pandemic is still with us in the U.S. The overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now uh, steady, two weeks steady, at a rate of about 12,000 cases a day. Um, worldwide, most countries' rates of new cases are dropping or, stead- or are steady. However, Brazil and Colombia's infection rates are again slowly climbing. India's rate has now peaked and rapid and has rapidly dropped to 47,000 cases, uh, new cases of COVID-19 a day, mostly of the Delta variant. And I just heard something on the news that uh, the first Delta variant has been found in Louisiana, and they expect in the next two to three months that that's going to be the dominant uh, variety of COVID-19 in this country. Mm-hmm. So um, whether we have a, another spike in, in cases and in deaths remains to be seen and they're, and they don't know, you know, they're at least admitting that. So 
Now, I was surprised when I was out running errands today. I was one of the very few people that had masks on. Right. And we would see each other in the store and it's kind of like, yeah, st- solidarity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Delta's this- roaming around and there's too many people that are anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers that are acting like they got a vaccination. Right. They didn't. <laughs> right. And so there, there's a, a, a lot going on out there. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. Um well, and um, these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website. And uh, well, not the state of Montana today because uh, that site is down. I couldn't get it up. But anyway, we are certainly not done with this virus yet as it is still at large in the U.S. and spreading at over 605,000 deaths, which you have to take pause over that number. That is that's more than have died in the all the wars from World War II to today in the U.S., right, U.S. people, um, in just one year. Uh, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. According to Kaiser Health News on June 24th, quote, life expectancy across the country plummeted by nearly two years from 2018 to 2020, the largest decline since 1943, which of course was in the middle of World War II, when American troops were dying there, according to the study. But uh, but while white Americans lost 1.36 years, black Americans lost 3.25 years, and Hispanic Americans lost 3.88 years. Over the two years included in the study, the average loss of life expectancy in the U.S. was nearly nine times greater than the average in 16 other developed nations, whose residents can now expect to live 4.7 years longer than Americans. Compared with their peers in other countries, Americans died not only in greater numbers, but at younger ages during this period, end quote. And to confirm that kind of observation, uh, according to the figures of March 13th of this year from the Lowy Institute in Australia, the U.S. was objectively rated 96 out of 102 countries, almost at the bottom, in our public health response to the pandemic. The U.S. has so far accounted for 15% of all deaths in the world and for 19% of all confirmed cases but still with only 4% of the world's population. Those are very grim things to be exceptional at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like our, uh, the World Happiness Index, <laughs> the U.S. keeps dropping year by year further down from right. you know, the democratic socialist nations that are way up at the top. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, and, you know, isn't being happy with your life, kind of really the, the goal of all this. <laughs> I mean, like liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's it. And uh, we're being sold down the river on that. Um, so uh, this was also from Kaiser Health News on June 24th, um, where the author brings economics and other social determinants of health to bear on the coronavirus situation. With coronavirus, quote, with coronavirus infections falling in the U.S., many people are eager to put the pandemic behind them, but it has inflicted wounds that won't heal easily. In addition to killing 600,000 in the United States, 
and affecting an estimated 3.4 million or more with persistent symptoms, the pandemic threatens the health of vulnerable people devastated by the loss of jobs, homes, and opportunities for the future. It will almost certainly cast a long shadow on American health, leading millions of people to live sicker and die younger due to increasing rates of poverty, hunger, and housing insecurity. In particular, it, this is the Kaiser Health News. Okay, this is mm -hmm. this is the uh, this is not you know some left wing pub publication. In particular, it will exacerbate the discrepancies already seen in the country between the wealth and health of Black and Hispanic Americans and those of white Americans. And I would add between the health of basically what they're saying is wealthy people and the health of poor working yes. people. That's, you know, that's a, another way of summarizing that. Um, this past week, there are still um, people in Montana hospitalized from COVID-19. I wasn't able to get those figures because their website was down. Um, but we have been saying since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten, it is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can, to frequently wash your hands, and to get the vaccine if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity does require some sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination, and fully reopening the economy. So speaking of vaccinations, what are the statistics showing? How are we doing on that front? Well, um, according to a May 29th article in, in the Stanford Medical School's website, epidemiology expert Julie Parson, Parsonet warned that COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy has probably made herd immunity unattainable which makes vaccination all the more important for personal health, end quote. Uh, overall, in the U.S. and Montana, the vaccination rate is increasing at a trickle. Montana has only fully immunized 43% of our population as of Thursday, an increase of 1% point since last week. And that is below average for the country, which is not doing that much better, at 47% fully vaccinated, according to data from USA Facts website. In Montana, everyone can now make an appointment or just walk in at several locations to get vaccinated. And if you haven't, you should, because we have not reached herd immunity through vaccination yet in Montana or in the US. Well, that's alarming as we are not close to the minimum necessary to have herd immunity. That's right which is probably 70 to 75%. So uh, it's gonna be a while before we get there. Um, and to maybe completely foobar the entire situation, the Centers for Disease Control issued uh, a month and a half ago, a release of people who are fully vaccinated from wearing a mask. This was condemned by the National Nurses United Union, which in its statement said, quote, is calling on the CDC to revise this guidance and to adhere to science and the precautionary principle in its recommendations, end quote. And despite that call, 
President Biden's uh, new head of the CDC has basically said that those she's not she's not going to change those recommendations. So um, I, I just heard that I just read that the other day here. Um, and despite a campaign promise to set occupational health and safety uh, COVID-19 rules for all workers, the Biden administration only issued them for healthcare workers, despite the fact people are still getting the coronavirus at work. As for me, I'm still gonna wear my masks while in public and indoor spaces, even though I am fully vaccinated. Well, what's our last story about today, Mark? Well, and you know, our word of the day is, or word of the week has been general strike. And just wanted to touch a little bit upon what's happening in Colombia. Well, in Colombia, they have engaged in a national strike, which is certainly a form of general strike. It started on April 28th and has ebbed and flowed since then. On June 15th, Telesur reported, quote, on Tuesday, the National Strike Committee announced new strategies to prevent state terrorism from affecting those Colombians who are protesting against President Ivan Duque since April 28th. This announcement was made by the Central Union of Workers, President Francisco Maltes, who also indicated that the National Strike Committee will temporarily interrupt the mass mobilizations that took place every Wednesday. The protest leaders announced that they will encourage a quote, great national dialogue, end quote, through which citizens will elaborate draft laws in order to concretize the emergency list presented to Duque, to the Duque administration in July, 2020. The interruption of the mass mobilizations, however, does not mean that the protest and the, and the national strike is dissolved because social organizations will concentrate their efforts on the elaboration of their action plan in the coming days. Uh, said Maltes, the social mobilization will continue in Colombia. More mobilizations will come later. CNP members will hold a, well, the Strike National Committee will hold a large mobilization on July 20th to present seven bills to Congress, end quote. So what they're doing is that <clears throat> they have the organization and, and, the, and the action. They've been doing a national strike every Wednesday and they feel like they have enough power to articulate their demands, the demands that are democratically decided upon about, by the people who are actually participating in this. And they're gonna have one big um, mobilization on July 20th to present those demands in the form of seven bills to Congress. So they're, that, those are their demands. And, and obviously if Congress does not meet those demands, then the national strike, the general strike will continue. You're listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it in the Missoula Valley on KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. Or you are hearing it streaming on Saturdays from noon to 2 on 1055kfgm.org. And uh, you may be listening to it on podcast, now available on anchor.fm and on Spotify and other uh, podcast apps that you might have. Um, and you can search for it under 
Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Come all you good workers, good news to you, I'll tell. How the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on?
That was Natalie Merchant singing Which Side Are You On? Our interview today on Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% was conducted by Zeth Stone and introduced by Natsuki Nakamura on May 30th at a gathering of the Bozeman chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. This recording is courtesy of the Bozeman DSA. All right, so today we have Cooper Carraway. Uh, Cooper Carraway comes from a working class family in Texas. His mother was a retail worker and his father worked in the trucking industry. He began his journey into organizing in high school when immigration agents showed, showed up and set up camp, started raiding people's homes in Mount Pleasant, Texas. Cooper Carraway, then a high school junior, organized a series of actions and demonstrations until the federal agents packed up and left town. He then went on to work in Dallas for the labor movement. As an organizer with Jobs with Justice, he worked to bridge the community labor divide. He has since served as a union rep for the American Federation of Teachers and an organizer for the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. In 2017, he relocated to South Dakota to serve as lead organizer for AFSCME Council 65. And in 2018, he was elected president of the Sioux Falls AFL-CIO. At the age of 27, he became the youngest CLC president in the nation. In September, 2020, Cooper made history again when he was elected president of the South Dakota Federation of Labor. At age 29, he became the youngest state labor federation president in the nation. Welcome Cooper. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I brought I brought the coffee. You all brought the comrades. I think we've got everything we need. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Yeah, no, we are so excited just to like bend your ear for a little bit, Cooper. Um, and uh, we're going to ask you kind of a lot about Montana labor and South Dakota labor um, and how like there's a big overlap there. But before we hop into the questions that are more geared toward Montana, um, how goes it and what's what's kind of the state of the labor movement in South Dakota right now? Uh, so uh, I would say state of the labor movement is strong. Um, we've uh, over we saw a small dip in union density uh, the past year, but for the three years before that, uh, we saw an increase in union density and we were the only state in the AFL-CIO's Midwest region, uh, including states like Illinois, Pennsylvania, things like that. For three years there, we were the only state that uh, in that whole region that had an increase in union density. Um, and I think uh, a lot of that is due to uh, more and more union folks getting involved in the community, uh, getting active. Uh, we just held a very successful uh, May Day event, what we call uh, uh, our, our, our slogan was uh, pass the PRO Act, build the union, serve the people. Uh, and so we had a, uh, uh, we ended up uh, at our May Day event, we ended up having over 1,000 uh, in-person conversations about the PRO Act. Uh, we distributed over 30,000 pounds of fresh food uh, and over, uh, uh, over 1,000 uh, gallons of milk, all for free uh, to working families. Uh, in exchange for a once short conversation about the PRO Act. Uh, and so uh, it was good to see union folks uh, out there getting involved in some of these uh, uh, serve the people campaigns. And uh, those are the things we're gonna be uh, working on moving forward. God, I love it. That is exactly, um, I think that's what a union is um, as far as like that thing of like where 
you're getting together um, and you're sharing goods and services and community with one another. Um, I, I do want to like roll back and ask kind of one of the things you're saying, and I've been so impressed because I think that's one of the things that's led to, um, or I've seen that has led to kind of that, that increase in union density in South Dakota. Um, but what do, you, what do you think it was about this past year that saw that? Could you contribute to anything or would you say it was just maybe even the pandemic and people being like more spread out? I know there was the, um, the y'all had, y'all had one of the biggest stories with the, the meatpacking plant um, with the COVID outbreak there. That's right. So uh, what folks need to understand about union density is that the way it's measured is a little different than a lot of people understand. So union density, a lot of people assume union density means uh, the percentage of union members uh, of the workforce. So the percentage of the workforce that's union members. So if you have if you have 10% uh, union density, that means 10% of the workforce is union members. That's not right. Right. The what union density is, is the percentage of the workforce that's covered under a collective bargaining agreement. All right. So they don't have they're not necessarily union members. They're just somehow their wage hours, conditions of employment are dictated by a collective bargaining agreement. Um, and so I think what happened was we had a few um, a few unions have have had uh, uh, a couple of uh kind of school districts kind of out uh, far away uh, that, that were technically covered under a collective bargaining agreement, but only had one or two members, um, a, a, couple of, uh, a, a couple of things like that where uh, the unions were under new leadership in the past year or so, and they decided to withdraw representation uh, rather than continuing to uh, spend money servicing these areas, they only had one or two members. And so to, to as far as per caps and as far as union members, we only lose one or two union members, but according to union density, we've lost 200 or 300 because it's everybody in the school district, right? Does that make sense? And so what I, the best I can tell is because we haven't had any decertifications, uh, our, our, all our local unions are showing an increase in internal uh, organizing. They're showing an increase in internal membership. Our AFSME, statewide AFSME group is about to hit, if they haven't already, about to hit historic levels of membership, more members than they've ever had in South Dakota. Um, and so we've seen the increase in that. So the best I can tell is we've had a couple locals who have withdrawn representation from some areas that had very low membership. Oh, no. And yeah, thank you for that um, explanation of union density. That's like one of those statistics that's like almost needs a statistic um, for how many times it needs to be or ha has to have been explained to somebody else. Um, but no, I think that's like extremely interesting because, um, you know, I think like using that as a way to look at the number of people covered is probably like as a way to um, and like labor power. Um, is something that union members from right to work states would have to do, right? Because the, the reason that they're covered, um, you know, all those collective bargainings that cover the units that cover um, those people are a result um, of right to work, right? Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I asked it because it's like one of those, we just had our right to work and it's like y'all are, y'all are, y'all been right to work. Like one of the first states to become um, 
or pass under right to work in like the, so I forget that when the Taft Hartley, um, when that was 1947, 1947. So yeah, so shout out. It seems like uh, there's there's something deep within South Dakota um, people that like won't let them, you know, even though it's right to work, haven't let them completely decertify. Um, so there there is a base level of just like that um, understanding that uh, there's solidarity in the union. Um, and with that is why I want to pivot to, we, we just had our own right to work um, battle in Montana. Um, we ended up defeating it, even though we have a supermajority Republican um, legislature and executive. Um, but so we were excited about that um, because there is like something, I guess, in the, the, the prairie populist um, background of states like Montana and South Dakota that seems to be sticking. Um, but one of the things that I got to bring up was we, you know, as much solidarity as Montana had for that right to work, um, there was legislation, these pipeline protester bills that you've seen like propping up all over the country um, to, to um, basically penalize peaceful protesting. Um, and I was wondering, like, one of the things that we saw was a Montana AFL and a labor movement that acted like that wasn't their issue at all. Matter of fact, they, um, they withdrew opposition um, in one of the hearings after probably one of the most, like, uh, inspiring um, stories um, for why, why it was uh, kind of the, uh, the beginning of fascism, um, of, of a way to stop people from organizing, a way to stop people from peacefully um, resisting against corporations. Um, and I and I guess I got to ask, like, since the same thing happened in South Dakota, um, what's your thoughts on on kind of labor's labor's role in disputes like that? And um, if you. How there to me, I see a disconnect, but it's like one of those I would see how that's not that's not a working class issue that labor should be handling. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so first I'll say that, you know, while my administration typically has uh, different ideas uh, and different opinions and, uh, and end up on different sides of issues than other state federations, uh, our, our assumption uh, and, and what we hope that other state feds assume about us, uh, our assumption is that they're doing the best they know how to do uh, for the working class. The same way we expect all state federations to look at us, to look at my administration, and even though we may have some different ideas, we expect them to assume that we're doing the best we can to represent the working class. Uh, so when the when the uh, protest, we had a similar, um, they called it a riot boosting bill uh, here in South Dakota, um, and uh, it was to criminalize the, the pipeline protest was was the initial. But the way it's written, it criminalizes, uh, it, it puts heavy penalties. On, uh, on, uh, on pro it makes protesting pretty dangerous, uh, pretty dangerous to organize, pretty dangerous to participate in. Um, and our position uh, with that bill is the same position we took during the, uh, the, the summer uprising last year after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, our position, the position of my administration has been, the labor movement is in no position at all to criticize anybody for protesting, to criticize anyone for marching, to criticize anyone for throwing rocks, to criticize anyone for burning down buildings. 
we are in no position to criticize anyone for doing those things because that uh, those tactics, all of them, violent and nonviolent, are exactly the way that the labor movement has secured everything that we've ever won. Everything the labor movement has ever won. The labor movement, as far as movements go, as far as organizations go in this country, has thrown more pounds of rocks than any other movement, has burned down more buildings than any other movement. And, and we've done it because we do what's best for the working class. And sometimes we, we, we use all tactics necessary. Um, if, you don't like, uh, uh, if you don't like that stuff, don't participate in it. Uh, but our position has been, we're in no position to criticize anyone else uh, for following the same route we've followed uh, to secure wins for their community and their beliefs. Um, and so uh, our position was an attack on, on anyone's right to, to assemble, to protest uh, or, or anything is also an attack on the labor movement and, and, and it is a way to uh, prevent us from doing the things that have historically uh, led us to victory. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with that. And that's, I, I guess, like kind of that, kind of not like making that connection um, of like, you know, especially this one, it was disproportionately would affect natives. Like, you know, native um, people are the ones who have uh, really led the pipeline protest and um, it spearheaded it. It's like one of those, and like it has been the most successful direct action um, that you could say has been exhibited in the past 50 years. I mean, that's the reason why all this legislation is popping up um, that you are like, you're starting to like, they are costing money by either um, delaying the, the process of the pipelines being built. Um, and then the legal, kind of the legal route as well, um, filing the lawsuits and like capital is like not seeing the return um, for as long. Um, and it's a way, it's like, you know, I found it extremely inspiring. Um, it's extremely inspiring because of the people who are leading that movement, but also like you can't help but see that this is also, and especially this reaction with this type of legislation, that capital is being put in check. It is there, it is a, through direct action you are causing, which is very similar to the tactics of a strike um, in the labor movement. And so I guess the question is like, um, hmm. I, I, as I was going through that, I kind of lost my question, but I, I guess the point being is like one of the things that I've really seen about like kind of the work you've done in South Dakota is there's a kind of a blur in between um, what is that identity as a, a member of the working class, as a union member, as a member of the working class, um, a member of your community, a member of your church. Um, and I guess like how how can we like begin to um there's a lot we can learn from these pipeline bills or like kind of these protesters um and i guess could you just talk a little bit about um what what y'all have done in south dakota to kind of blur that line of community sure uh so i'll say you know first you know to uh to build off something you said everything um everything disproportionately affects natives Every law disproportionately affects natives. That's the way colonialism works. 
uh, is that every every law that's passed that limits uh, the uh, uh, rights of anyone is going to disproportionately affect uh, the, the the colonized uh, people. Uh, and so, you know, that's something that that uh, uh, we've been struggling with in South Dakota. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of tension with the state government uh, and with the uh, indigenous nations here. Uh, the labor movement has uh, chosen, I think, the correct side uh, on it, at least since I've been elected uh, in uh, backing the indigenous communities uh, in uh, in against the state government uh, at every opportunity we've had. Um, but I'll say that you know it's it's very as far as working class uh, identity, it's very simple. Um, the idea is that you don't stop being a union member when you clock out. And you don't stop being work, you don't start being working class when you clock in and you don't stop being working class when you clock out. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's simple as it is. Uh, you, know, and, um, you know, we understand that different folks face different levels of exploitation. Uh, we understand that, uh, that uh, you're all working class people are exploited. Uh, that's the way a capitalist system works. Uh, we understand that all women are exploited. That's the way a patriarchal system works. Uh, we understand that all people of color are exploited. That's the way a white supremacist uh, system works. Uh, and so, uh, but you know, what binds us together is our exploitation. Uh, and uh, what should be binding us together, what, what binds us together right now is the fact that we're all exploited. What should be binding us together is that we are willing to fight uh, against that exploitation. And that's the kind of culture that the South Dakota Federation Labor is trying to build. Uh, we're trying to adjust it to where uh, rather than it, it being solely uh, the fact that we are exploited that could be binding us together, we're trying to uh, use solidarity and resistance uh, to bind us all together. Um, and so, you know, for example, you know, a, a, a white working man is heavily exploited uh, uh, because he's a working class person. Uh, but uh, a, 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 a woman of color uh, is exploited once uh, for being a worker in a capitalist system. Then she's exploited again for being a woman in a patriarchal system. Then she's exploited again for being a person of color in a, in a white supremacist uh, system. She's triply exploited. Uh, and so the best, the only way we can resist against these things and, and show solidarity with each other is, it, is understand the ways that we are exploited and understand the ways that our uh, uh, comrades and relatives uh, in the working class are exploited. Uh, and, uh, and use our commitment to resist that exploitation and dismantle it uh, as the glue that binds us together. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely want to build off of that, um, man. Uh, so the, yeah, that exploitation, that shared experience, um, and I, that kind of the membership that um, doesn't, you whenever you clock out like that identity that you're part of the working class. Um, it's because there's, there's all of these issues that like um, so many of us have once we clock out. Um, you, you, towards the end, you brought up the um, um, patriarchy and the uh, women of color. And it's like one of the other things is like, you know, here in Montana and I, I, or I can speak for Montana. It's like one of those like, Childcare is such a huge issue that like every working person faces. And with that also the major thing is our housing. Um, it's like in the past year, um, you know, our median home price is like increased like 52%. So the price of a single family, home, so something along those lines, I don't want to get hung up on the 52, but a lot. Um, that was one of them that I saw, but it was over $700,000 for a single family home. Um, so it's like, you know, 
you're working eight hours, you're tired, you come home. Um, it's like you're, you know, you get your paycheck and it's going basically to landlords, the mortgage company. And then um, the pay, if you, if you have a child, you decide to create a family childcare. Um, and it's like one of those, one of the things we've done with Bozeman DSA is try to have childcare and snacks at every meeting in order to kind of like take some of those burdens off. Um, but I always think about, you know, unions have pensions, like, you know, like why, why can't, why can't unions step in here and kind of fill some of those gaps with, um, you know, instead of propping up the capitalist class or, you know, kind of the exploitive system that is exploiting us. Um, what, I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Like using, we're using that working class money to, um, protect protect your own yeah i think it's necessary um so i you know i believe that that you know i take the i i think a lot of folks have uh, a lot of folks in the labor movement have an incorrect view on how members view their union dues and the same way i think a lot of folks in politics have an incorrect view on the way working folks view their tax dollars um i think that uh the the typical belief uh, in mainstream politics is that regular people are always going to be opposed uh, to their tax rate and are always going to be opposed to their tax dollars going up. Um, and I, that's, that's not been my experience. Uh, and I think that that's a, uh, I think that's a lazy uh, uh, analysis. I think that um, folks typically don't mind uh, how paying taxes if they feel like they're getting something for it. I think the reason people typically are opposed to taxes going up is because in their whole life, they've never paid more taxes and then gotten more things for it. Uh, their life has never gotten better from paying a little bit more in taxes. Um, and and that's, that's just never been the case. And you can tell them, okay, well, raise the taxes will make your life a little bit better. They're not gonna believe you because it's never been true. Uh, and I think uh, there's a similar belief within the labor movement that union members are just always going to be against uh, and not like the idea of their dues going up. Um, but my position is, has been that if their due, if, if union, union members wouldn't mind raising their dues, if they're going to get a, uh, a, a if their life is going to get better because of it and, and really better, not, okay, well, we can hire another person and now you're going to get a 3% pay increase instead of 2%. What I mean is like seriously better. Um, and, you know, this like union folks can raise, uh, can, can, can raise their union dues and use that to provide housing, use that to provide childcare, use that to provide anything their membership wants. Um, the same way that, that they, can use, they can look at union dues uh, and their membership, the same way that governments look at workers and their taxes. Um, you know, they take a little bit of the tax money and they use it to provide services. Uh, and, and, and union members are lucky. We don't have to pay for, you know, bombing Middle Eastern countries or, uh, or anything like that with our union dues. So we can do it, use it ent entirely uh, on providing services. Um, and I think that that's the direction we'd like to move ahead. Uh, here in South Dakota, we've committed uh, to building a union-based childcare program, not just to meet the needs of, uh, of union members uh, who have children, not just to provide a service, uh, but to build a, a, a future that flourishes with working class culture. And almost everywhere I go and I speak, 
uh, I talk a lot about history of the labor movement and stuff like that. Almost everywhere I go, people ask me, how come I never learned any of this stuff in school? How come I never learned about the Haymarket martyrs in school? How come I never learned, you know, about all these different labor struggles in school? And mm -hmm. it, it, the answer is the school don't teach you that. Um, and for a long time, I criticized, you know, tried, tried to run campaigns to get the uh, public school system to adopt a labor history month um, and, and teach labor history for a month as part of a curriculum, things like that. It's been very difficult to get public school, uh, schools to agree to that. And then one day, you know, having the conversation, uh, the, the, the answer just came to me and said, why should we expect the state or the state that's, that's heavily influenced by the capitalists, why should we expect them to teach our history? Why should, why should we? It's not their job to teach our history. It's our job to teach our history. Uh, and so that's another uh, aspect of building a union run childcare program. It's providing, yes, providing childcare, but also providing uh, education. Education on not only union history, but the future of, of the working class uh, and teaching working class values, real working class values, values of solidarity, anti-racism, anti-fascism uh, and things like that from, from cradle to grave. Man, no, I'm getting, I'm getting pumped up here. Uh, yeah, no, I, and I really appreciate um, kind of that, the, the part where you talked about where you had your own realization that like, why should we expect them to change? Like we have to create that. And it's like kind of that, um, you know, we, we here at Bozeman DSA have, uh, and you know, we partnered with other groups like the Gallup and Sunrise um, uh, as, as well as others to put on uh, community union uh, trainings. Um, like we, we brought in union, uh, union, we paid a union organizer to come in um, and teach, you know, at the local library, um, what a union was and how you could start one and, you know, this process. And we've also offered trainings. Um, we're big Jane McAlevey fans. Won't get too far into that, but we're, we're on our third um, uh Jane McAlevey training right now, um, and that it's open to everybody. You don't have to be a DSA member. You don't have to be, um, you have to be working class um, and you've got to build want that change. So all that is to say that um, the, one of the things that you mentioned was like kind of taking that ownership um, and to bring it to Montana, um, what I've seen, um, and this is my opinion, uh, a lot of the unions have really adopted um, a uh, electoral approach to how we're going to get those work, those those changes for working class people, those tangible things. Um, as far as like you know, you elect, you, um, you want to pay raise, you got to get this person elected because you know those are the people um, who can maybe do that, or you know, um, I guess. I, I don't, I, I, I'm coming from strictly from my, I was a public employee, so that's why I, I go with that one. Um, but like uh, this electoral approach and um, it, I guess like what I, what I'm hearing is that like, that's a bit, um, that, that is a tool certainly, but it really only gets you so far. Um, and so I guess like what I would, the question I'm leading to is what do you think um, for us as people who are um, very active, you know, rank and file union members, uh, as well as like we have, you know, officers that are within our ranks. Um, what, what do you say, how can we go about, um, what do you think about the electoral strategy um, that unions have put in um, or have been common within unions? Um, what do you think about that? And what can, 
what can we do as rank and file union members to begin to um, get our our uh, affiliates to switch gears and become more of that, like take ownership of like, no, we can actually solve a lot of the problems that many of the people like are facing in their communities right now, if we want to. Yeah, so I think you can do both. Um, you know, we have, we have a political program, we have an electoral program, uh, you know, here in South Dakota, you know, our focus isn't on, you know, rubber stamping uh, Democratic Party candidates, you know, our focus is recruiting union members to run for office. Uh, so we, I mean, we don't care if, 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 uh, if you want to run as a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, a communist, a socialist, uh, you know, a libertarian, whatever you want to run as, if you got a union card in your back pocket, we can trust you a lot more than any of the letters next to your name. You know, as far as I can tell, you know, an independent uh, running uh, with a union card in their pocket uh, is much more trustworthy than a Democrat that's running without a union card in their pocket. Um, and so that's, that's, that's our political uh, program. Um, and so, you know, we, we do that. We, we spend some time, we spend energy on that. Um, but, you know, we, we only have a two, three month uh, legislative session. Um, and so we got nine months to do other stuff. Um, but, you know, I would say, I would say you, you not only can you do both, but you both, you, I mean, you have to do both. You have to, ha you have to be in the community and you have to be building power in the community uh, in order for uh, your endorsement to mean anything. You know, if the public doesn't know you, you know, if the people don't know you, you know, if the people haven't seen you uh, in the in the community, talk to you, shaking your hand, you know, giving you a fist bump or an elbow bump or something like that, and and you know, recognize you. If they don't recognize you, then your endorsement don't mean anything. You know, they're not that they might see something in the paper or see something on your website or something like that. Oh, the the labor endorses these folks. Uh, but to a regular person who's not a union member um, and who's never met you, that's not going to mean that's not going to make them vote for that person. Um, and so you have to build power in every way. Uh, what, what, what we say in South Dakota, we say fight on every front. Um, and so multiple fronts already exist. All right. They already exist, whether you acknowledge them or not, whether you acknowledge the uh, electoral front, it already exists. Whether you acknowledge the community and public front, it already exists. You know, whether you acknowledge any of the, uh, the international front, it already exists. And so if you choose to put all your eggs in one of the baskets, what you're doing is you're surrendering the other fronts. And you're saying, we're choosing not to fight here. We're surrendering that ground. We're gonna lose that. And what it does is you end up getting weaker uh, in the place where you put all your eggs. Uh, and so what you have to do is acknowledge where the fronts exist and then choose to fight on everyone uh, in, in, in any way that, that you have the capacity to do. Um, and you know the thing is with, with uh, you know, union members are regular folks, right? Um, and so regular folks have a wide diversity of likes, of dislikes, of strengths, of weaknesses, of skills. Right, and so a lot of places I go, people ask me, "Oh, well, we only get five or six people at a union meeting. How, you know, how do we prevent that?" Well, do more at your union meeting than than running through the treasury report uh, and rubber stamping the new business and then moving on. Because if that's all you're doing at the at the union meeting, then you're going to attract people who are into that, who are interested in that kind of stuff and that kind of uh, administrative, you know, type thing. You're going to attract people who are into those things, but that's the only people you're going to attract because that's all you're offering at the union meet. 
uh, what we have to do is engage people and, 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 and acknowledge the wide diversity of interests and skills that working people have. You know, working people built the pyramids. You know, everything standing, working folks have built it. You know, every piece of art that, that has lasted for a thousand years, working people built that, you know, regular folks like me and you who bleed and cry and feel and all this stuff, we built all those things. Harvard wasn't around, you know, we didn't need Ivy League anything <laughs> to build any of this stuff. We built the infrastructure of the entire world. Uh, and so we, 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 that's what we're capable of. We're capable of everything. And so what we have to acknowledge is the diversity of skills, the diversity of interests and things like that and, uh, and, and, and relate that back uh, to our membership when it comes to our actions, when it comes to our meetings, when it comes to our administration and when it comes to our politics. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm ready to go work out, man. You're getting me going. I, I absolutely love it. Um, no, the, the thing being, um, the, the part that you're talking about, kind of that, that identity, or like, I, I guess I keep going back to that, but that um, I always feel like kind of there's like somewhat of a myopic feeling among working people um, in the sense of like realizing that they are the ones who have built everything. Um, you know, it's like one of those like, People talk about Jeff Bezos, and you know, it's like one of those, like, I worked in an Amazon plant. The people who are doing the, like, who are making that company go and making Jeff Bezos, like, you know, name appear on the front page of the Washington Post, the paper he owns, um, uh, are, are the working people. Like, they're the ones who built that wealth for him. And um, I guess, like, kind of, we're, we're kind of going coming towards the end a little bit here, but um, I, I wanted to maybe kind of that realization that we are the ones who are actually working people are the ones who are actually um, created all of the wealth in this country um, and how they could use that, like um, how they could use that to their advantage. Um, so that's to pivot to kind of come full circle with like the pipeline protest and um, kind of uh, working people using the, the tools that they have um, in order to build power. Um, we don't see strikes much often in Montana. Um, it's like the, the thing that, I, I guess it's like one of those, it's almost like it's taboo, and, but I would be remiss to say that um, tomorrow is gonna be like one of the first strikes that I've seen in Montana um, or labor disputes minus um, that is a pure strike. We had a lockout in three forks um, in 2018. But um, what what do y'all what is your position on strikes? Um, you know, and what um, a lot of unions in Montana I've seen um, union leaders they don't want them. They don't want that conflict. Um, can can working people actually make the gains that we're talking about? Um, if they don't use um, the power they have. And I guess, what would you say, what are y'all doing in South Dakota? What's the South Dakota AFL's position on strikes, I guess? Uh, so our position is, is simple. Um, it's one sentence uh, and it's by any means necessary. Uh, and so uh, focus on, you know, the, don't put a lot of people when they say by any means necessary, they put the emphasis on the any, right? Uh, we put the emphasis on the necessary. Right. And so um, we don't want to say we don't want to ever go into a situation and say this tactic is off the table. 
this action is off the tape uh, because it's not. Uh, we're doing a disservice to our membership and to the working class if we take any tactic that might end up being necessary, if we take it off the table, because then we're, 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 we're negotiating with two hands tied behind our back. Um, and so what we believe is, is uh, any means necessary. Now, if we can get uh, everything that the membership is demanding uh, at a negotiating table, that's good. Uh, if we can get it from picking up the phone, that's good. If we can get it from a petition, that's good. If we can get it from electing someone, that's good. Um, but if it takes more, uh, then it takes more. Uh, you know, organizing and uh, is, is really about confronting reality on reality's terms. Um, and uh, uh, reality's terms don't always mix with your own personal terms. And so personally, you may not be uh, uh, willing to or, or, or wanting to conduct a, a strike or a walkout or a picket or an informational picket or, or any sort of thing. Um, but um, sometimes reality's terms dictate that those things are necessary. Um, and so that's, uh, that's our position. Our position is uh, by any means necessary, we support all of our local unions uh, and we trust that they're making the right decisions. Uh, the State Federation of Labor is never going to discourage a union uh, from walking out or for going on strike or for doing anything that they determine necessary. Our position is their, their membership elected them to lead them. Uh, and if they've decided that uh, a strike is necessary, uh, then we'll put uh, the full force and authority of the State Federation of Labor to support it. Yeah, no, and I really, I, um, I think that's like one of the things that, that kind of um, has confused me about that is like you said, like if that's what the members want, um, then you're going to support that. It's like one of those, like whatever, you know, you have all these tools on the table and it's like the members are the ones who are really um, trying to pick which one of those that they, you know, feel, feels the most empowering they think is the, uh, um, most tactical. Um, and I guess like kind of to close out, um, I've, I have uh, been following, have you been following the um, Vermont AFL-CIO um, kind of uh, dispute? And um, yeah, it to, just to kind of um, give a little info, um, I believe it was early, um, there was a, members um, wanted to see a more progressive and um, yeah, more progressive and member run um, AFL um, and so therefore they organized they won leadership positions um, and then democratically elected um, you know these new members and then at their first convention um, passed which also you did very similarly um, like they were going to go on a general strike for um, uh, uh, oh, if that was for the insurrection, for the insurrection, um, and also um, that what was the other thing? There was like a couple other things, but basically, uh, Richard Trumka, the president of the AFLCO, decided that um, that was that was beyond the pale. That even though it was democratically um, elected by the or um, decided by the AFL's um, membership or delegates, that um, that that was uh they didn't want to see that um and so since you also have um you know kind of had like similar anti-fascist rhetoric um you know you, i believe what was it y'all you y'all put in the um the in y'all's charter or y'all's new constitution that no fascist could be, or a member of white supremacist group could be um 
which I think is a great idea and would love to see here too, um, could hold an office officer position in a in their union in an AFL affiliate. So um, I guess like that's a roundabout way to say, um, do you think, what, what's your position on the Vermont um, AFL and do you think Trump is coming, like Trump is coming for you in South Dakota? Well, let me, let me say this, right? There's a few things. Um, that issue is just a little bit more complicated than it's made seem. Like most, like most issues, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, I'll say this. Um, no one can dispute differences and all. Uh, no one can dispute that Richard Trumka's administration, uh, starting from when he was secretary treasurer and John Sweeney was the president, John Sweeney, a DSA member. Um, no one can dispute that this has been the most progressive administration in the history of the AFL-CIO. Now, the AFL-CIO doesn't necessarily have a stellar uh, uh, record when it comes to progressivism, right? Um, but, you know, when, uh, you know, when uh, Richard Trumka was elected international president to the mine workers, uh, he was 33 years old, and he was seen as the young radical union leader in the country. Um, he was chosen to run as secretary treasurer uh, when him and John Sweeney took over the AFL-CIO from the vastly more conservative Lane Kirkland. Uh, you know, they overthrew him uh, in, uh, in, in the mid-90s. Uh, and then at their next convention, they got rid of all the anti-communist language in the national AFL-CIO constitution. Um, and uh, they created the position of executive vice president uh, so that people of color were guaranteed a position in leadership. Uh, and uh, they've done they've done a lot of a lot of good things, um, but I'll say this: um, from my understanding, the position of the National AFL-CIO uh, towards uh, our brothers and sisters in Vermont uh, was that um, it made no sense for them to pass a general strike resolution. So what they did was they took a general strike. Uh, they took a, 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 a general strike vote that said that the leadership of the Vermont AFL-CIO had the authority to call a general strike if there was a fascist coup uh, um, before Biden's inauguration. And so that's the way that went. Um, and the position from the national AFL-CIO, uh, from my understanding, was uh, Vermont can't declare a general strike. Uh, the position was that that it takes all of us to have a general strike. The general, a general strike call, uh, a general strike in Vermont is not a general strike. It's a statewide strike in Vermont, uh, but it's not, a, it's not a general strike and it's not one that could disrupt the fascist coup uh, in Washington, DC. Uh, if, if the you know, eight, nine, 10% of the Vermont workforce didn't go to work. Um, and so uh, kind of the, the, the position was that if you wanna organize for a general strike, that's something that needs to be done nationally. Um, and I sat in discussions with national AFL-CIO leadership and I asked, you know, the questions. I said, look, man, uh, we can't be caught flat-footed, all right? Uh, so regardless of if you think it's likely or not, we need to have some kind of plan if there's going to be a coup d'etat in D.C. And um, basically, you know, the word I got back, uh, what the word I got back was, if anything like that happened, then... Uh, there would be buses from every state filled with union members converging on DC. Uh, and that's, that's what I got from the national AFL. 
Um, and so from my understanding, you know, it's the, the, the situation has kind of been blown out of proportion. A lot of times state federations do things or have different ideas than the national wants them to have. And there's a discussion that's had and things like that. Um, but, you know, from what I could tell, this is just a, a, you know, small, really kind of bureaucratic disagreement. It's not really over ideology or anything like that. It's, it's you know, one organization saying you don't have the authority to call a general strike. And then another organization saying you don't have the authority to tell us what we have the authority to do and stuff like that. You know, and, <laughs> you know that, that's what I get to. It doesn't seem to be, I, I, don't, I don't believe it's ideological. Um, I don't believe, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it's political. You know, I believe it's just, you know, bureaucratic kind of chest bumping. Oh gosh, yeah. Sorry, and, th and thank you for everybody allowing, like, humoring me. That was probably the most self-serving question of the interview. Um, well, with that being said, uh, we have, um, I know, um, we have we have uh, participants and a lot of DSA members as well as other people from the community on the line, um, and we've got ten minutes or fifteen minutes for questions here, and. Uh, yeah, just uh, if we could raise hands um, and ask questions, yeah. Um, I was curious, so you were elected president after a particularly conservative president who was very pro-police during George Floyd protests and um, just kind of seemed to create a very toxic uh, rhetoric that he was using. So what was it like running against that and also or running with that climate and then how are you changing the culture now or addressing that going forward? Sure, yeah, I, I appreciate that question. Um, yeah, the different, uh, the, the, the president before, I, before me uh, definitely had uh, some different political positions and opinions than I do. Um, but uh, the reality is um, one thing about uh, running, whether you're running within the labor movement or you're running uh, for a political position, um, you're running in any election, if your platform is ambitious, the more ambitious a platform you have, uh, the more revolutionary a platform you have, uh, then the bigger mandate you need uh, uh, when you get elected. Uh, the, that's the bigger margin you need. Um, so, you know, if you have a huge, uh, a very ambitious platform, getting elected with 51% is not a good is not a good sign. Yeah, you got elected, uh, but you don't necessarily you haven't been able to show the support that you need to show uh, in order to actually get uh, uh, your platform put into place. Um, and so I understood that that um, we were going to need a big mandate um, in order to change things uh, as radically as we wanted to change things. Um, so I started campaigning for my position a year and a half before the convention. Uh, and this is, this is a, a significant uh, because typically our state fed elections don't even have campaigns um, or any campaigning that's done is done at the state fed convention itself. Uh, you know, there'll be nominations one day and then people will campaign overnight at the bar or, you know, somewhere else. And then the next morning there's a vote. Um, but I started, you know, printing up campaign materials, visiting locals, tr talking to folks, trying to secure, uh, trying to secure an endorsement, 
Um, we had the folks from Means TV, the same folks who made uh, AOC's campaign video, came down to South Dakota and made a campaign video for my campaign um, and uh, stuff like that. So we kind of, you know, flooded um, the locals and the membership uh, with, with the message. And so by the time it came around uh, for elections, I ended up uh, running unopposed. Um, so I was elected, you know, with 100% of the vote, um, and uh, and uh, that's certainly enough of a mandate uh, uh, to get some things done. Um, but you know, that's that's going to be the case, you know, no matter who your who the the previous uh, occupier of the position was, or no matter who your opponent is, uh, you have to think about your own goals and the things you want to actually build. And the only way you're going to build them is if you have the people behind you. And the more uh, you look at it like a project, right? The bigger building you're trying to build, uh, then the more people you need to help you build it. Uh, and so if you're trying to build this massive uh, infrastructure, this massive building, you're going to need more than 50% of the community behind you. Uh, you're going to need 60, 70, 80%. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, that's what I'd say. Um, that's, that's the tactic we used. And that's what I'd encourage other people to do as well. I would love to hear your message that you, you started with a year and a half earlier and went forward with. Yeah, so our, our position was, you know, we need, uh, uh, so we, we modeled it a little bit after the 1995 uh, Sweeney Trump National AFL-CIO campaign. Um, and so uh, they were called the new voice slate um, and they were running against the old, older conservative guard. Uh, and so we, uh, our, our, our signs, you know, all said, um, uh, we need a new voice, for, a new voice for South Dakota. Um, and our position was building union culture, investing in uh, working class art, uh, 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 building union services like childcare, building union housing. Um, uh, doing, uh, doing this sort of thing. Um, and on politics, electing union members, not, not throwing our eggs into one political party or, or, or another. Um, and so that was our, our, simple, uh, our simple platform was uh, fighting on all fronts, uh, like I said, uh, meeting, uh, 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 adjusting our politics a little bit, uh, uh, meeting, serving the people, serving the community, uh, 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 building uh, uh, labor power through uh, providing services of our own, building independent infrastructure, uh, and investing in and nurturing uh, working class art, working class poetry, working class uh, graffiti, working class murals, um, uh, working class music, uh, all, all sorts of things like that. Um, let's see. So I, I come from a very conservative background, a really anti-union family. So I'm still trying to get my head around all of this. Uh, so I wanted to hear your thoughts um, about what advice you would give us to um, push the uh, Montana AFL-CIO to stand up for all working people by supporting protests of colonial infrastructures. What are your thoughts on that? Well, typically the answer to, you know, no matter what the question is, the answer to how do we get the AFL to do X, the answer is for you to get involved. And, you know, the, the AFL at the end of the day is a democratic organization, right? Uh, and uh, the, the leaders are elected. Uh, the the uh, delegates to the convention are chosen and elected. 
Um, some are dictated that, you know, this officer has to go per their constitution or whatever, but a majority of the delegates are elected um, and uh, the officers are elected by the delegates. Um, and so the decisions are made in a democratic way. Um, and so, you know, uh, it's, you know, I, I encourage folks not to take, you know, if, if the state federation or if the labor movement isn't doing exactly what you want it to do right now, I encourage folks not to be, not to fall into defeatism um, or something like that and think, oh, it's because this uh, structure is not built to do this and it'll, it's irredeemable and all of these things. It's not. Um, all that means is that uh, you haven't gotten involved um, to, to the point to where you can win over uh, a majority over to the way you're thinking, over to your position. And if you keep at it, you'll eventually win, win those folks over. Uh, if, you, if you're right and you're consistent and you're steadfast and you show up uh, and people know you and know you as a person to show up and know you as people to show up and support and show solidarity and things like that, uh, then you will eventually win folks over, uh, especially if you're on the right side of history. Um, you know, there's something that no matter what, no matter how long people have been in power, no matter how long people have had certain ideas, history wins always. Uh, and so if you're on the right side, uh, then you'll and, and you're consistent uh, with your organizing and, and you're spreading your ideas and popularizing your ideas, then you'll eventually win out. Um, uh, one more question. Um, you mentioned in, it kind of at the beginning of the talk how indigenous people are always taking the brunt of the abuse from the development of state sanctioned infrastructure projects. So I'm curious how has, uh, has and how has the uh, South Dakota AFL-CIO reached out to the councils or, and or significant uh, power brokers in the tribes in South Dakota to partner or support them? Yeah, so what we're doing actively um, is we're running uh, several programs where we're getting union members and union leaders uh, to visit and tour all nine sovereign nations in, the, in, in South Dakota. Uh, and uh, through that, we're working on building what we're calling an indigenous labor advisory committee. Uh, and so the Indige Indigenous Labor Advisory Committee is going to be a committee made up of uh, uh, labor leadership and representatives from all nine uh, uh, sovereign nations in South Dakota. Um, and it's a way to address working class and indigenous issues collectively, uh, to build a, a collective table uh, so we can work together and so that you know the building trades and other labor groups can help build infrastructure in Indian country uh, and also uh, help address, we can work together to address uh, the, the exploitation and discrimination and harassment that indigenous workers face in places like Rapid City and Sioux Falls that are off the reservations. Uh, because a lot of these places, uh, uh, in Rapid City, you know, indigenous women are hyper-exploited, uh, particularly in the hospitality and tourism industry. They're hyper-exploited. They face sexual harassment and other and racial harassment uh, uh, all day during their work shift that they're working in the hotels or they're working in other tourism industries and things like that. Indigenous men are picked up as day laborers uh, uh, to work in Rapid City on projects and told they'll be paid at the end of the day. At the end of the day, they're told that they're not going to be paid uh, and things like that. And the only way we're going to address those things uh, is if the labor movement and indigenous uh, communities work together uh, because we are natural allies the same way any part of the world colonized people oppressed people and the working class of that country are natural allies and the only way either one of them has achieved emancipation and liberation is through working together 
Um, I once again pumped up. Um, okay, so one one thing that I've heard you um, talk about, or I've seen in some interviews of yours before, um, you put an emphasis on um, like uh, kind of this like the nationalistic um, kind of tendency to be like, well, we just want an American built. Um, and how we can like we turn it within our borders, I guess, as like kind of um, um, uh, being a like rallying cry of like I, I don't know like also union identity, like being built by American workers. And you you kind of rebut that. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about kind of like why it's so important to not um, to not so to not focus so much on um, like the uh, the conditions of American workers, but also um, international workers as well? Well, the reality is, is that uh, by, the Buy American campaign hasn't worked. It hasn't been effective. Uh, it hasn't led to, uh, it hasn't led to an increase in, in uh, uh, worker power. Uh, it hasn't led to a decrease in, in outsourcing. Uh, it's, it's failed uh, miserably. Now, if it had succeeded, you wouldn't hear me criticize it, but it has failed. Um, and so the, the position I believe of the working class needs to be that, that we need to unionize the world. Uh, all workers need a union. And if all workers had a union, uh, if, if, if Costa Rica was 90% union the way that, that uh, Norway is, then you wouldn't see call centers closing in South Dakota and moving their operations to Costa Rica. If, if all uh, countries were, were, were uh, had strong labor protections and strong labor movements and things like that, then you wouldn't see company, you wouldn't see outsourcing because uh, it would not be cheaper to move uh, from one place uh, to another. And so the same way that the greed uh, and exploitation of capitalism flows freely across every border, the solidarity of the working class has to flow, flow, flow freely across every border. Uh, and that's, that's the only way we're gonna tackle um, uh, the issue of, of, of globalization in the future. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change. And it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming to the U.S.A.
left or right I'm just staying home tonight Getting lost in that hopeless little scream But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet Democracy is coming, 